happen is they just move around the congregation and they be in different groups. became self-consumed. And so they had these certain desires, but the desires sort of morphed into demands. And when the demands weren't met, then they just started arguments everywhere they went. Here this morning to tell us, hey, this is a high-risk area. You're, you're entering into a high-risk zone and so you, you and I need to take the appropriate precautions, not only for ourselves, but the people you're sitting right next to. And not only for yourselves and the people you're sitting next to, but we're planted in Wilmington to be a, a light to the city. And so we need to take these precautions. We need to take this word seriously so that we don't do anything against the glory of God. A couple of preliminary remarks as, as I was just reading through these verses, I thought this would be helpful. Uh, the first one is rather sobering, and that is that James is describing conditions inside the church. These, these verses that I've just outlined in the introduction, these are not verses that James is saying, hey, in the business community in your neighborhood association, in your school. He's saying, no, I'm a pastor. I'm, I'm writing a letter to my church, and I'm addressing issues that I see happening inside the church. Occasionally you'll hear someone say, oh, if we could just get back to the very first church. Well, here it is. It's not very pretty. Over and over and over, James is addressing very similar issue. And one reason I think this observation that needs to be to be stated is to adjust expectations. Especially if you're new to the Christian faith or maybe even new to coming to church or new to Christ Community Church. I think we have wonderful people here. But we have very needy people here. We still have very weak people here. Every person here, whether you're a founder or you just joined with the last class, you still need the gospel desperately. There, there is no perfect group of people that you're going to enter into. You are not going to marry the perfect person. Well, except for Nancy, she got that. But most of you are going to have struggles in that area. Plenty of opportunity. So when you come across somebody and say, I can't believe, you just say, what an opportunity to extend forgiveness. And you're going to have to receive forgiveness, and you're going to have to extend forgiveness. That's the nature of being a part of a church. But thankfully, James is like a, a very faithful, 
patient pastor. He he's seeing it. He's but he's not saying you have to stay there. there. Your congregation can grow. Your congregation can become more faithful. Your congregation can become more Christ-like. So even though we know that's happening, we can grow out of these situations. We can grow through them. And so James offers some very helpful insight on how to navigate these high-risk areas. The second observation that you see really in both of these areas is a need for a, a humble adjustment. I would say a, a crucial need for a humble adjustment. I don't actually think you can go forward with the instruction and receiving the instruction until this humble adjustment has taken place. And, of course, I don't know what tone James may have been using, but you see it in two different phrases. He he looks at his congregation in verse 12 and says, well, who are you? Who are you? You think you're the judge? Guess what? No, you're not. There, There just needs to be a very humble, realistic adjustment. You're not the judge. I'm not the judge. There really is only one judge. And we all need to get underneath that one judge. And if we cannot get out from underneath that, if we cannot put ourselves underneath that judge, then you're going to struggle with your tongue. The second thing you see in verse 14, what is your life? What is your life? Critical? Necessary? Super important. Church can't go on without me. What does he say? Takes out a little spray bottle and goes, that's your, okay, that was your life. Paul Phillips, uh, gosh, what happened to him? It's not a demeaning thing. It's it's sort of a a wake-up thing. Who are you? Okay, I'm not as much as I thought I was. What is your life? It's, It's not as critical as you thought you were. Once that adjustment takes place, then you can move forward, then you can have health, then you can move out in relationship in the right way. But if those things are not adjusted, then it's difficult to receive James's instruction. And I think James is, is personally familiar with this need of adjustment. David used this uh, last week in his uh, sermon on Jude. Jude and James were brothers And both of them were half-brothers of Jesus. And both of them were in need of this humble adjustment. You remember back in Mark chapter 3, Jesus' early ministry is beginning to explode. He comes to a house, and there's so many people in the house. He and his disciples who had gone to the house to eat, they just can't eat. I can't pick up my utensils. I mean, so many people are here. And and so this popularity is growing, and Jesus' family presumably including James, including Jude, they come and they make this assessment about Jesus in verse 21 of chapter 3. I love what they say here. Jesus is out of his mind. We must take control. Now, it's, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that James is going to be in need of an adjustment. If he comes to Jesus and say, hey, you're out of your mind. But thankfully, I'm here. And I'm going to take control. 
And that adjustment happens in James. And you see it in chapter 1, verse 1 of his book. He describes himself this way, James, doulos curio isu Christu, servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, this is a, this is a 180 for James. And now he's got a brand new assessment. And what is that assessment? You know what I learned, James would say? I learned that I'm out of my mind. And for me to have any hope, Jesus has to take control. You see what's happened? On, in the beginning, it's, you know, Jesus, he's out of his mind. Thankfully, I can take control. But once this adjustment happens, James says, no, no, no. It was completely upside down. I was out of my mind. And now Jesus must take control to turn me completely right side up. And so before we we move forward with the instruction in these few verses, before we could hear them, before we could act on them, you, you have to ask yourself this question, where do I have an inflated view of myself? Where am I in need of an adjustment? Where do I think my life is critical and it's really not? Where do I act like the judge? And maybe most critical, are you willing? Are you really willing to say, I'm out of my mind? Not, well, I just need a little help. No. I'm left alone. I'm out of my mind. But with Jesus in control, then I have, as we sang, we really have the mind of Christ. Well, with that adjustment in our minds, let's take a look at uh, verses 11 and 12. We only have time for these two verses this morning. Next week, we'll look at verses 13 through 17 and boasting. So if you're thinking, I don't need any help with boasting, then you don't need to come next week. <clears throat> Obviously, if you think that, you really need to come. Uh, verse 11 and 12. Let's just read these again together. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and destroy. But who are you? Who are you to judge your neighbor? And when I read these verses, the first question that comes to my mind is, is James forbidding the use of any kind of judgment? And you sort of just read this and say, well, I guess I can't make any judgments. So is James saying, you know, don't use judgment. Answer, no, he's definitely not saying that. And there's lots of reasons you could say why you're sure he's not using it. But probably the easiest thing is his whole book is a book of judgment, is it not? You go back in, in, in uh, chapter 4 and verse 3, he says, you're asking, he's looking at his congregation, he's making this assessment, you're asking and you don't receive. 
But I can tell you why. You're asking wrongly. You're, you're asking to spend it on your own passions. You're an adulterous people. Well, that sounds like he's making a critical assessment in my mind. So it's not like he wrote that down, put his pen down, took a little nap and came back and says, you know, we shouldn't judge each other. Whoops, whoa, I just, just said something different. That's not what's happening here. It's a different kind of judgment. And sometimes you can sort of take that verse out of context with anybody who's making some sort of assessment. The, the kind of judgment that James is talking about here is, is defamation, slander. It has a foundation of pride. It has an, an attitude of superiority. I'm, I'm looking down on you and making comments. One commentator says this, If you're truly low before God, you have no altitude left from which to talk down to anyone. My sense is that probably most of us aware are aware of the difference between discernment, using discernment, and defamation. James does a nice job of just walking through this in chapter 4. The, 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 the quarrels and fights in verse 1 of chapter 4 have shifted into slander. And James describes a situation that you would understand if you were in middle school or you were middle age. Because it, it really has the same pattern. It's a, it's a well-worn path that we all tend to go down. It doesn't matter if it's a church family or your family or school or work. When you come together with a group of people, eventually somebody doesn't get what they want. You have a desire for things. You might even have a desire for good things. But those desires go unmet. Those desires turn into demands. I must have this. I cannot go forward if this doesn't happen. And so the demands turn into, or the desires turn into demands. James says your, your passions begin to sort of bubble up. They're, they're at war within you is how he describes it. And you begin to slander. And the slander always starts, and this is important, the beginning of the slander always starts in your own mind. But before you ever speak any evil out loud towards someone, you've already spoken it to yourself. You've already said it. To yourself, You've probably rolled it over and over and over again in your own mind. You look at somebody and say, I'll, I'll silently watch you. I'll silently observe the gaps in your character. I'll silently chart your weaknesses. I, I'm going to silently stand by and judge who you are. I'm going to roll these things over and over in my own mind. And if this internal attitude isn't addressed, you're going to blow right by the stop sign that says, be slow to speak. If those passions just keep bubbling up, there's a stop sign that James has pulled out and say, be slow to speak. But you're, you've got such a head of steam, you never even see it. 
And finally, you, you would, or secondly, you would identify the person or maybe a group of people that you have the issue with and what you've been saying in your head comes out. You've been thinking this about a church member. You've been thinking this about your spouse. You've been thinking this about your brother. You've been thinking about this about your neighbor. You've been thinking about this and you've been saying it again and again. So when it comes out, oh, it's just so smooth. Because you've said it to yourself a hundred times. You begin to fight and quarrel. Two parties move away. But you're still boiling inside. And into this environment, a third party steps. And what happens so often? It just boils right back out again. And now you, you've been tearing them down in your own mind and building yourself up. You went to them and you tore them down and built themselves up. And now a third party enters in and you tear them down again and you build yourself up. They're wrong. I'm right. They're stupid. I'm smart. They're dull. I'm sharp. They just can't get it. Thankfully, I can. They can't see. Well, I can. Unfortunately, you morph into the judge and the jury. And a lot of times after it's over, you feel good about yourself. And this sound familiar? James inserts himself on this path. He, know, he knows this well-worn path. He's been down this well-worn path. He's watched people in his congregation go down this path. So as the pastor, he's inserting himself right at sort of the trailhead, and he's got his red flag out, and he's saying, don't go this way, danger, high-risk area. And I like the first thing he says in verse 11, don't do it. You know what that means in the Greek? Don't do it. It's not, not real complicated. It's just the first thing. It's just, hey, this path, don't go on this path. This is a bad path. I mean, if that's all you need, maybe today that's all you need is you're going down that path. Just don't go down that path. You've probably been down that path before. It's not successful, is it? It temporarily makes you feel good, but it doesn't bring about Godliness in any way. It doesn't bring about a resolve in any way. But James doesn't just stop with don't do it. He really begins to address issues of the heart. He begins to uh, tell us some things about ourselves that he's aware of in his own heart. And he's beginning to tell us. About ourselves. He, he, he says, you know, you know, your problem isn't your vocabulary. Your problem isn't your communication technique. Uh, the problem really exists in your own heart and your own mind. Verse 12 again. Who are you? It's, it's like James is identifying a, a kind of spiritual amnesia that's happening to some in this congregation. And so he's, he's saying, now, now, do you remember? Do you? Do, do you remember who you are? Have you forgotten who you are? Have you forgotten your position? See, because when you, when you forget who you are as a sinner, when you forget your, your position, 
the, the default mechanism in you, the autopilot, the most natural position to slide into is to judge. And so he says, don't, don't forget who you are. In, instead of following the law, which is what you should be doing, and I, I think this is a reference to the royal law that James talks about back in chapter 2, verse 8, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Instead of following the law, you, you no longer need to be a doer of the law. Instead, you're, you're on top of the law. Instead of loving your neighbor, instead of being gracious to your neighbor and bringing your neighbor into the kingdom or the presence of God in that way, you've decided, no, that's really not the best way. The best way is the force of our argument. The best way is logic. The best way is I raise my voice. And God has given us a way to bring people into his presence that can only be done by grace, but you've decided I think it can be done by a different path. It cannot be done by a different path. And when you think that, you're on top of the law. You're deciding how it's going to get done in this case. Only love can accomplish some things here and how much easier it is to judge rather than to offer mercy. Ultimately, this leads to the terrible error of thinking yourself as the judge and really elbowing God off the throne. You know, God, you're just not really doing a sufficient job. Let, let, let me go ahead and move in. God, I don't really like your way. It's not bringing about the results I want, so let me go ahead and take over. And when you value your opinions above the commands of God, then you value yourself above God. James, graciously standing on the path this morning, waving his red flag, saying, don't, don't go this way, reminding us that there's only one lawgiver, and then reminding us the power of that one lawgiver. He alone has the power to save and to destroy. Why does James mention that? He could mention any kind of characteristic he wanted to of God. But he said, hey, no, there, there's a real judge, and that judge will one day make a judgment, and it'll be a judgment to destroy or to save. He's standing there. James is standing there, and he's saying, I can see it. I can feel it. You're coming down this pathway to destroy somebody. You're coming down this pathway to tear somebody. I mean, I feel it. I've felt it before. I've been down this pathway. And I, I can see all of your energy just saying, really what I want to do is I want to put this person in their place. I want to take them down a few notches. I'm ready to destroy. And James says, no, there is somebody who can destroy. There is a judge. And do you hear what he's saying? You deserve destruction. Do you know who you are? You're a sinner saved by grace. And you're somebody who Jesus could have come down this path and rightfully made a judgment and saying, you deserve to be destroyed. But instead, he went a different way. He went this way. And he's saying, if you want to be a real follower of Christ, this is the way. It's not tearing people down. 
It's, it's coming down. So how, how do you live your faith out on the streets? This is what it looks like. It's very difficult to do. But James is a very kind pastor saying, don't go down that road of destruction. And if you need some help to know why is, is that's not the road Christ used for you. So turn and look at the cross and decide, I'm going to choose a different path. Robert Campbell would say at this point, I loved how he said that several times in his sermon. I don't know who I'm talking to this morning. But see, I know who I'm talking to this morning. I'm talking to me. I'm talking to everybody here. Nobody here should say, man, it's a great sermon for the person on my right. Everybody's familiar with this. This is a path every person's been down. And so as we move towards the communion table, here are just some things that you might want to think through. Are you swimming in a high-risk area? Have you already developed, I'm slandering this person over and over again in my mind? And if I'm not careful, it's going to spill out. Maybe you're suffering from this spiritual amnesia. You've really forgotten who you are. You, you've, you're moving quickly down the path of destruction. You, you're putting on your judge's robe. You're the righteous one. You know what's right. You're going to make sure it all gets fixed. You're going to bring people down. And maybe you've just forgotten who you are. And you just need to be reminded of who you are and who you're not. Maybe you've set yourself up as a judge. And like James, you need to come to the table and say, I'm a sinner. I'm a servant. Maybe you've forgotten a lot of things. And Jesus isn't at all surprised. He's not saying, I can't believe you forgot. He's saying, I know you were going to forget. Why do we know that? Because when you come together, what are you going to do? You're going to do this in remembrance of me. And there's lots of ways to be reminded of him today, but it, it might need, you might need to be reminded that he is the one judge. He is the one who can come and save and destroy And he is the one who's laid down his life for his people. And if you want to enter into those difficult conversations, if you want to enter into a marriage, if you want to enter into a church family, if you want to enter into any kind of relationships, this is what you're going to be called on to do. To re-examine the cross, to understand who you are, And to understand the way in which he is showing us to go. It's a narrow path. It's not well worn. Let's pray together. Heavenly Fathers, we come and we celebrate and are reminded of your sacrifice for us.
where your body was torn, where your blood was spilled for our sake. And maybe we think we just can't go one more step in a conversation or a relationship. We just can't get this out of our mind. Would this be a table of grace? A table of reaffirmation? A table of remembrance? Would you uniquely bless these very common elements to minister to your people? I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.